0: Well, we, um, my family just got back from Zion. We decided to experiment on uh, what a uh, vacation would look like the same Sunday I'm preaching. And it was fun. We left Wednesday afternoon, got back Saturday afternoon, drove two travel days, but two full days of hiking at Zion. It was beautiful. And I was proud of my kids. They made it to the top of the, the base of Angel's Landing, which is right before this terrifying place where you have to hold on to chains to save your life. I don't know why you would do that. But um, we didn't do that part of it because it was scary enough. But they did it. We were proud of them. And it was just a relaxing time together. Rode some horses together in that, in that valley. But the thing we were going there for was to hike the Narrows. This is a river hike that normally is, you know, just knee deep. And you have to get suited up for it and you're hiking and the canyon walls just get thinner and thinner, closer and closer. And it's just beautiful. That's really one of the main reasons why you go to Zion. So on the first day we went to the Zion Outfitters to get our gear, it was cold water. And they said, well, based on the age of your youngest kids, we wouldn't recommend you going. The water's flowing fast. It's gonna be about chest deep for you. That's about a foot above Titus's head. And I'm like, well, how long is it chest deep? Because if it's only like a minute of him underwater, he should be, he should be fine. And they're like, no, we really don't recommend it. And everything in me wanted to oppose the advice that I was being given. But on day one, I yielded and said, all right, I guess we won't do it today, we'll check back tomorrow. The next day I go back, how's the river today? It's a little worse, that the water's still going, we just don't recommend it for you. And what if I put him on my shoulders for this hike? And they say, sir, it just doesn't seem very safe. And so finally, because I valued the life of my five-and-a-half-year-old more than our adventure, I yielded instead of opposing to this advice because I knew, you know, normally they would just want your money, but in this situation, he wanted to keep us safe. And so how could I not take that advice? We're going to see in John chapter 7 that everybody seems like they're opposing Jesus and how sometimes we're tempted to do the same. But I have to set the context for us because after John chapter 6, six to 12 months have passed. And we don't have that recorded in the Gospel of John, but the other three Gospels fill in that timetable for us, and we can see what Jesus was doing in the Galilee. But this was the time of the Festival of Tabernacles, a time where Israel remembered that they had to stay in tents in the wilderness, but God took care of them for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. He gave them food, he gave them water, their sandals didn't wear out, In Jesus's time, a priest every day would pour out some water during this festival to symbolize the water that came out of the rock during this time that we read about in the book of Exodus. And so the people are celebrating this, but there is mounting opposition to Jesus. It's only six months after this festival that Jesus is crucified. And so everything's coming to a head. And as we look at this passage, we see despite all the opposition, and all the controversy around Jesus, he is focused on helping people, and he offers help to meet people's deepest needs in in the middle of all this chaos. And too often, if we're honest, we resist the help of Jesus because it's difficult, it requires a change, and we want to oppose that good work even as believers. But as we look at the opposition Jesus experienced today, my hope is that we would realize there's never a good reason to resist our Lord because of how much he loves us. And so we're in John chapter 7. If you have a Bible, you can open it. You can open up our app and click on Sermon Notes as well to follow along. But in John chapter 7, it says, after this, that's 6 to 12 months, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify its works are evil. You go to the festival, I'm not going. And Jesus wasn't going to go publicly. They said, go publicly. You wanna be a public figure, right? That's the description they think of their brother. He wants to be popular. No, that's not, not why Jesus came at all. We see here that some oppose Jesus because he speaks hard truths to them, right? He, he says here in verse seven, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Well, that's no way to win over a crowd and become a public figure right? Your works are evil, right? But he is speaking the truth. Now, it's a difficult truth, and sometimes when we read the Bible, we have hard truths that are spoken to us, and we have to decide if we're going to oppose the work of God in our lives or receive it. I wanted to oppose that, that guide at the Narrows because I wanted to go on this adventure, but I ultimately received him and his advice because I cared more about my family, and I appreciated him caring about that are we going to receive the work of Jesus? It's easier when you know people love you that are giving you advice. With Jesus, yes, he said our deeds are evil, but he came to die on the cross for our evil. So how could we not listen to him when yes, he speaks the truth, and yet he's going to solve this as well. And so hard truths are difficult to swallow. In verse 12, we see another reason for opposition. It says, among the crowds, this is after he did go up privately to the feast, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, nope, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. See, some people oppose Jesus because they're nervous about what others will think about them. Right, if I believe in Jesus, what are my friends going to think about me? So everyone's talking about Jesus and thinking about Jesus, but nobody will say anything out loud because of the leaders they are fearful of. Believing in Jesus might not be good for your reputation. You know, and people people think through that saying, what are are people going to think about me choosing Jesus? What's that gonna mean for me? Now there's an example in this passage of someone who pushes past all of that and stands for the truth despite what it means for his reputation. If you jump to verse 50, it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, that was in John three, and who was one of their own number asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And so he puts his name on the line to question his own religious party that's up there and they look at him and say, what are, you, what are you from Galilee? You're rooting for the hometown hero yourself? No, there's no profit from there. And so all of us have choices in life. Are we going to reveal our faith to other people or conceal it because we don't think it's gonna go over well? I remember years ago, which was a couple years after I was getting right with the Lord in, in college, I was at a church in New Jersey, and I had my two best friends right next to me, right and left. They were believers in Jesus. We were at church together, and it was one, one of those worship songs where, like, every line felt like it was, raise your hands, raise your hands, lift your hands to the Lord. And I just all of a sudden got this idea, maybe I should lift my hands to the Lord, and that was, a, that was something I'd never done before. And so my friends and I are just kind of sitting there. We're super cool, by the way. You know, we're just really, really cool. Just sitting there like this, you know, worshiping like this, little head nod, just, you know, just in case a lady was looking. And, and so you're worshiping the Lord. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is telling me, raise your hands. The song is saying, raise your hands. And I realized, but what do my friends think? My friends are gonna think I'm a loser. I was like, I have to do this. And so, <laughs> And then they looked and I put them back. And I was like, no, I, I gotta be bold bold, raising hands. And then finally, I'm like, oh, forget it. I was like, oh. I raised my hands during the song. Afterwards, we're at a diner, and I was like, so do you guys want to talk about what happened? Yeah, you raised your hands. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, how did it feel? I'm like, it felt really good, actually. (laughs) And they were totally fine with it. But I was worried, and I was ready to not worship the Lord how He was calling me to do it because of my friends. We all have those choices each week to reveal or conceal our faith. Now, in verse 21, there's a whole other reason to oppose Jesus. You see, people start talking to him. He begins to teach, and it says, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle. He's talking about John chapter 5, the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda, and you were all amazed, or really in an uproar about it. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and instead judge correctly. You see, some oppose Jesus because they think they know better than him right? Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances. Judge correctly. I know you're judging me. I know you think you know the right thing that's going on. And he proves to them that they're in the wrong. He says, yes, it's a law that we are to rest on the Sabbath, but it is also a law that on the eighth day, an Israelite boy is to be circumcised. And when that lands on a Sabbath, you obey that law, even though technically you're not obeying the Sabbath and resting perfectly. He's like, you do that and you're fine. I healed somebody that hasn't walked for 38 years and you're trying to kill me, and you're in an uproar about how I broke the Sabbath. They thought they knew better than him, and sometimes we think the same thing. We read in the Old Testament a really difficult passage and say, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do things like that, or we pray to God and we're begging him for something in our lives, and our prayer is unanswered, or the answer comes back as no, and we say, well, if I were Jesus, I would have said yes to my prayer request. Unanswered prayers are great opportunities to remind ourselves why are we following Jesus, for who He is or for what He will do for us. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55, where God says, "'My thoughts are not your thoughts, "'neither are my ways your ways. "'For as the heavens are higher than the earth, "'so are my ways higher than your ways.'" God is infinite in His wisdom and power. We are very finite, regionalized, Right and yet we think well if I were God we have to be careful of opposing the work of God just because we don't fully understand it. He's infinite and he's good, so what he does is for a reason. Now in verse 26 there's there's a whole different reason why people are against Jesus. Here here he is speaking publicly the crowd said and they're not saying a word to him. The Pharisees aren't coming against him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. So the first confusion is that they think that the Messiah is going to come mysteriously. And then in verse 41, they have a similar confusion. Others said he's the Messiah, but others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town of David's where David lived? So some opposed Jesus because of misinformation about him, right? They're not even looking to the correct sources. There were two rumors going around that weren't even true that were causing people to reject Jesus. One was a popular view of the rabbis at that time period that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from, verse 27. It was a popular view among religious leaders, but it's nowhere in the Bible. It's just not in the Bible. They they made it up. They thought it made sense to them, and it's confusing people about Jesus. Another is they thought Jesus was from Galilee, from Nazareth. Well, he spent time there, but he was born in Bethlehem. But because they didn't push through that misinformation to talk to him about that, they got confused saying, yeah, he feels like the Messiah, but he's from Galilee, not Bethlehem. We're like, wait a second, no, he's from Bethlehem. He does fulfill all the requirements to be the Messiah. Sometimes we're upset with a Jesus that doesn't even exist. Sometimes we have problems with a part of the Bible that if we read it in its context would make a lot of sense to us. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to have questions, but don't linger in that moment. Push forward and do the research to understand why the Bible says what it says. If you're making a decision about Jesus, use the correct source, the scriptures. As I was looking through this, I found an article online that I thought would be helpful just to point to. And it's called, uh, we'll put it up on the screen, it's five fake news stories about early Christianity. And they summarize some problems that some people struggle with and they give answers. So one is that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Well, he wasn't, but people say that and they give some good answers in this article. Or the fact that Jesus was God wasn't decided until the Council of Nicaea. Or Christians didn't have a Bible until the time of Constantine. Or the Gnostic gospels like Thomas were just as popular as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, or the words of the New Testament were radically changed and corrupted over time so it can't be trusted, maybe one of those topics has stumbled you or confused you. Well, they give a really brief answer in this article and then point towards further research that you can do. And so you can go to gotocornerstone.com slash article, and that will forward you to this article so that you can do the research. But let's make our decisions based on the truth about who Jesus is, not misinformation. And the final reason for opposition we see is in verse 32. It says, The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And the story with the guards is, is finalized in verse 45, where it says, Finally, the guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? Where's Jesus? Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. See, some people oppose Jesus because of bad examples they've seen in the church or in their Christian home, and they just can't get past the example that other people have set for them. These rulers were rude unkind and controlling, when you look at how they're dealing with the situation. They, t- they say this mob knows nothing, there's a curse on them, they're, they're foolish. Only we possess the right way to live. And this is, this is a horrible way to lead. The pain that we experience from bad leadership in the in church or even from hypocritical leadership in a Christian home, it's real, and I don't wanna, don't wanna minimize that, but is it an appropriate reason to oppose The work of Jesus, because what people are doing when there's poor leadership is they are disobeying the words of Jesus. Jesus is upset with those people that are hurting others in the church or in the home. And so if we look to Jesus, we realize he isn't happy with this. That's why I'm not happy with this example I'm seeing. But does that mean that I shouldn't go to Jesus directly when these people are disobeying his commands and are going to be judged by him? It's not a good enough reason. In fact, are any of these reasons for opposing the work of Jesus to be justified? Verse 31, many in the crowd believed in him and they said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? They're struggling with all this misinformation, all this confusion, and then they say, yeah, I get it. I get we can't figure out this whole Galilee thing, but is anyone gonna do more miracles than Jesus when they come? Are we really expecting a better Messiah than Him. And if they had followed that train of thought, then they would have pressed on and realized these aren't real obstacles. Jesus is the Messiah. And as you look at your own reasons for opposing the work of Jesus, you have to ask yourself, are are those reasons justifiable? Are they good reasons? Are they warranted? Or is it time to yield to Jesus instead of opposing Him? Doesn't mean there may not still be questions, but what I love about Jesus is in the middle of all of this opposition, people trying to kill him, speaking poorly about him, what does he do? He extends an invitation, a loving invitation for people to be blessed by him. And he does this in verse 37. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Everyone has an invitation from Jesus to come to him. Every person in this room has an invitation to come freely to Jesus. The living water that is offered is free. Last chapter, the bread of life that we talked about, that is freely given. Jesus desires to give everyone the gift of the Holy Spirit. When he ascended into heaven, he was going to send the comforter to be with us throughout our whole lives. He gives this gift freely. Some things really are free if we'll take them. Now, it's true that out of the 100 times or so, Pastor Ron and I have have gone out to lunch, most of the time, like 99 out of 100, he's paid for lunch. All right, he's, he's, he's been very generous in, in doing that. And so I wanted to really bless him. And so I called him up one day and said, Shannon and I would like to take you and Debbie out to breakfast. There's a brand new place opening up. We want to buy. And his heart almost stops when I, when I said, yes, of course, we'll be there. This is historic. And so we show up at this brand new restaurant in town. It wasn't even a grand opening. It was a soft launch. And so they were still kind of sorting things out. We had a really good meal And at the end, when I was paying for it, he's like, I'm just really surprised and blessed. I'm like, well, technically, because it's not the grand opening and they're beta testing it all, it's buy one, get one free. So I'm really just paying for Shannon and I and yours is free. But to you, it's like I bought you lunch. I bought you breakfast, right? And so he knew something was up and he was right to to doubt me in that. Some things are truly free. I'm reminded of Isaiah 55.1 that says this. This is so similar to what Jesus said. come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah is saying there is something, a gift that you can have, salvation, that will not cost you a penny. It's not just water, it's it's wine and milk. It's It's this luxurious, amazing gift that God wants to give us. And there are no barriers to it. I saw some barriers in this amazing news article that I looked at that there was a a ship that had sunken, you know, 170 years ago or something that was found in 2010. We're going to put pictures of it on the screen because this is an amazing story. It was in the Baltic Sea and they discovered in this ship that it was transporting uh, champagne and they found 168 intact bottles of champagne that they brought up. It's amazing seeing them go through it. And and these bottles were intact. There was no seawater in them. Actually, because of the temperature, the cold temperature of the water and how deep it was, even the pressure... It aged really well, where some companies are actually experimenting with aging under seawater right now because of how well it was all preserved. So these things are brought up. They gather scientists to analyze the champagne and they invite the world's best wine tasters, the experts on everything, and they show up and they're only given 100 microliters to taste. And here's what they said it tasted like. Three notes. There was cheesy notes of animal and wet hair. So basically tasted like a wet dog they were drinking. What a letdown. But that was the initial taste. After, after the champagne had some time to breathe, they said it was, it was spicy, fruity, leathery, and everything changed. One guy said it lingered in his mouth for three hours and was amazing. But what an exclusive opportunity. You have to be either rich, one of these bottles sold for $156,000 at auction. Many sold less than that, so that guy got ripped off. But still, thousands of dollars. You either have to pay the expense or be exclusive and be an expert. Jesus is saying there's only one condition for the living water. You have to be thirsty. We have to be thirsty. We have to know that we need a Savior, that we need Jesus. We need to yearn for Him. See, our soul thirsts just just as much as our body does. And so when you go without water, your body gets thirsty. There was a sign in Zion that says Drink water, you're in a desert. And they didn't write the word stupid at the end, but they were implying, drink water, you're, you're in a desert. Our soul, when it goes without God, it gets thirsty in a spiritual way. Your body was made to live on water and your soul was made to live on God. And that is one of the most important things about us, that we have a soul. We are more than our body and we were made to seek God in a spiritual way. And so we have to drink from the greatness, the wisdom, the, the holiness of God or else our soul will wither and die. And our main issue isn't thirst. We, we are yearning for something. Our main issue is that we aren't thirsting for God, not thirsting after Him because our, our spiritual sinful condition is one where we have spiritual taste buds that are diseased, we, we don't want to yearn after God, to thirst after Him. And instead of finding satisfaction in God, we look elsewhere, and we look to the destructive things of this world or the distracting things of this world to satisfy us when we were made to have a relationship with God. So we're not content, and we struggle with restlessness everything becomes old to us, as exciting as it was at first. We're always trying to overcome this boredom, trend after trend, fashion after fashion. We are still thirsty. What's going on? Our soul is flashing an indicator light, saying something isn't working. I love my Ford Fiesta, but this one thing about it is just the, the low tire pressure indicator light is always going on. Why do, you, why do they even put that in there? I hate this thing, it's, it's always flashing. Look, so I go to get my oil changed, they fill up the tires, and it goes off for five minutes, and then it haunts me for the rest of my life, saying, low tire pressure, I'm like, it's fine. Well, it turns out a friend of mine told me that I was driving on a flat tire for months, and I should have listened to this low tire. I don't know which tire it was, because when I would walk around, it wasn't there, but I needed to listen to this indicator. And when our soul is telling us, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, This is God's mercy and grace to make us restless in our pursuits of lower things so we would keep seeking until we find Jesus. That's how much God loves us, that he won't allow us to be satisfied in the things of this world. In fact, God loves us so much, you might not like this about him, but God loves us so much that he will oppose our vain pursuits. So as we are intentionally going away from God to find satisfaction apart from him, God is against that, because he knows where we need to find our satisfaction in. So he causes every shiny object to become dull to us. Every adventure apart from the will of God eventually is lackluster. Every sexual escapade outside of marriage will go sour and each sin will sting until we have nowhere left to look except to Jesus. He wants everything but himself to grow faint in our eyes so we would pursue after him. And he offers to heal our spiritual taste buds. He can actually make our taste change from the things of this world to the things of God, which will end up making us a blessing to our family and our communities if we are pursuing Jesus with our thirst and going after him. So how does our soul practically drink of Jesus? First of all, it's pretty impressive that our soul can drink. That's an interesting thing just to think about. Our soul really does get thirsty and really can drink. So what does that look like? Well, today we drink of Jesus by consuming his living word, by consuming the scriptures. In the the last chapter we looked at last week in John 6, 33, Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. And so if we want to drink deeply of Jesus, we have to get into the scriptures. There's two obvious ways to do that. One is that we can can come to church and receive from the word. In Psalm 42, it says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so, so my soul thirsts after you, O God. And his specific issue was that he couldn't go to the house of the Lord. He wasn't able to go to the temple and that broke his heart. He's like, I'm thirsty for the Lord. I can't go and worship him at the temple. And so for some, our way of acknowledging what Jesus is saying and drinking deeply of him is moving from you know coming to church twice a month to every week when we're in town, right? So that we can receive from God's word. But that is only ever to be a complement to the real work of getting into God's word on our own during the week, reading the scriptures on our own in our, our daily devotional or, or quiet time. and and believing and reading the Bible, it's not just understanding facts, it's not just academic understanding, it's coming to the Word of God as if it were a refreshing drink, as if we were in a parched area and we needed water. When we were in Zion, we were constantly using the the refill stations because that sign terrified us. Drink water, you're in a desert. I'm like, yeah, we could be up on a mountain and we we need to drink water. And so we need to recognize Jesus is a river in the desert. Jesus is a great treasure to us. In your word, we find treasure. We find things that that we value. I have heard from many people in Cornerstone just recently who started reading the Bible on January 1st, and they committed to a Bible reading program for the year, that it is changing their life. To spend time going through the scriptures consistently is life-changing and it's how we drink deeply of Jesus. But we are not just drinking to satisfy ourselves, but to satisfy others. Because God doesn't want us to be selfish and just always focus on our own needs, but to be a blessing to other people, to pour out what we receive from him. Believers aren't just cups that are are filled to the top. We are filled overflowing. There's always enough for us and more so we can give out to other people. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. That's why I know that the, the 200 people that came out for CityServe, they felt joy in their hearts in pouring out to other people. They had that feeling of, I was, I was made for this. How am I having more fun doing this, painting someone else's house when my house needs painting? right? Washing someone else's car when my car really needs a washing, right? But how can I feel more joy in pouring out than just doing something for myself? It's because we were created to pour out. We were created to join God on his mission to to rescue a lost world. And so I just want to read this invitation to us one more time. But hear it as Jesus inviting you to a deeper relationship. Here's what he said in a loud voice. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the Spirit. Jesus desires to give us himself through the Holy Spirit. This is an invitation for every single person that is in this room or or watching online, that Jesus gives freely of himself to us, and we get to choose, are we going to oppose that, are we going to resist that, or are we going to yield? And I know many people here have made that decision to follow after Jesus, but, but just like in the first service, we had some people begin a relationship for the first time today, and if you have come to realize that Jesus is God, that he is your Lord, that you are a sinner and you need Jesus to be your Lord, that he has died on the cross and risen again, and you want to start following Jesus, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So if everyone would just kind of close their eyes and be in a prayerful mindset for those that are around you, if you would like to begin a relationship with Jesus, if you want to commit your life to following Jesus, if you'll just raise your hand, I'll just lead you in a simple prayer expressing that to God. You can just lift your hand up. Awesome. Great, I see some hands popping up. Great. Awesome. In the balcony also. Great. You can repeat after me in the quietness of your own heart, or you can say it boldly out loud. We're only going to rejoice with you. You can say something like this. Just be sincere. If this represents who you are, then, re- then repeat it. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner and I need your salvation. Please forgive me of my sins and make me a new creation. I invite Jesus into my life as God who died on the cross for me, rose again three days later and I commit to follow after you only if you'll give me the strength to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, if you made that decision, it is massive. It's not, it's not a little thing, it's a big deal. And so the worst thing you could do is just kind of sneak out of here and not tell anyone. And so I just wanna invite you to come forward and, and see my friend Wally over here and our New Believers team. Come over here, we wanna give you a, a new Bible. We wanna sit with you just for a few moments to talk about what your next steps are as a believer in Jesus. And for everyone else, you are invited forward to pray with our prayer team after the service. We all bring our own burdens in here and we wanna share those with you and bring them to the Lord. So God bless you guys, we'll see you next week.